Bibles. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Oh, wait, i got to wait until we're... Oh, we got the thumbs up. Thank you for joining us online if you've, you're tuning in on Facebook or our website. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, and we're continuing to look through uh, the prayer that Paul gives for these Colossian believers. And again, just to give you a quick reminder of why we're looking at this, is Paul, we know, never had an opportunity to actually meet with these believers. And so this letter, in many ways, is very applicable to us, because I'm pretty sure none of you have met the Apostle Paul. Um, and so it's, it's helpful for us to see the things that Paul prayed for as a guide for us to see the type of things we should be seeking in our lives and the things that we should be praying for. So if you look with me, Colossians chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 3, and we'll read through verse 14, uh, but then we're going to mainly be focusing this evening on verse 10. Colossians chapter 3, I'm just going to stop. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." So we've been looking at particularly, uh, we began, and it's been, I'm trying to think of how many Wednesdays it's been since we were back here, since I was gone. It's been quite some time. Uh, but we had finished that first paragraph, which is uh, verses 3 through 8, and we picked up in verse 9 and see that the prayer that Paul is praying is grounded in thanksgiving. And so we were looking at uh, those things, and we saw how he th he's thankful for their faith, he's thankful for their love, he's thankful for the hope that they have, and he's thankful for the gospel that they depend upon. And so based upon that wonderful foundation of the giving thanks for all that God has given us in Christ, he now prays that they would grow. And that prayer for growth, as I mentioned sort of to let us know what we're going to be looking for, it's growth in knowledge, growth in action, Growth in strength and growth in thanksgiving. So knowledge, action, strength, and thanksgiving. And those are all things that Paul is praying that we as believers would increase in, that we would grow in by God's grace. And so this evening, we're going to maybe get through the uh, verse 10 where he talks about how we're to grow in our action. Now, um, what we need to recognize, uh, particularly, first of all, is how action is the fruit of knowledge. 
We cannot divorce the two from each other. And we actually see that indicated here in the passage. He says, uh, I prayed that you would be filled with knowledge of God's will and spiritual wisdom and understanding. And if, if you're, does anyone remember, there's 10 billion Sunday school bonus points, if you can remember, the two Greek terms we talked about there. They both start with an S. One of them is the name of a girl that sounds like wisdom. No? Sophia. So Sophia and then the other one, which talks about knowledge. Does anyone remember? No, Sunesis. So Sophia and Sunesis. Um, so you'll get, I said, how many did I say? 300 billion? You get 150 billion Sunday school bonus points, and they're completely worthless, so you're welcome to them. Um, but Sophia and Sunesis. Sunesis is that idea of, of understanding coming together. Um, it, we talked about like when all the, all the pieces of a puzzle fit, that's what Sunesis is referring to. Everything sort of coming together and having a comprehensive understanding. Again, when you look at a, a puzzle, the puzzle isn't complete until every piece is in place. And then when every piece is in place, you can see what the image is supposed to look like. That's the type of knowledge that Paul is praying that they would have. But it's not just that ability to have the knowledge and see everything together, but we also need Sophia or wisdom so that we can take the knowledge that we have and do what with it? Apply it. That's what wisdom is. It's the application of knowledge to everyday life. And so if you see in verse 10, he's praying that they'd be filled with this knowledge, this Sophia and Sunesis, for what purpose? Is he just praying that they would know these things so that they would be smart Christians? That they would be able to list off the doctrinal truths and, and rattle them off like it's no big deal? No. He's praying that that knowledge would guide them so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It is not simp enough to simply have knowledge or even to have wisdom. You have to apply it. You have to do it. You have to live it out. Um, that's why the ESV here translates it so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This is the purpose behind gaining spiritual knowledge. We don't gain spiritual knowledge so that we can say we can um, recite all these doctrinal truths. We don't gain, even with what we're doing with the kids and, and the catechism that they're learning. I mean, it's great that they're memorizing those things. It's great that they're memorizing the Word of God. But the reality is, that's not all we want. We don't just want them to memorize and recite and get a patch. The goal is that they would apply that and walk in those truths. That it would transform the way that their lives are lived out before the Lord. This is particularly seen in what James tells us in James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Um, it's amazing to me how so often different things that we're studying end up coalescing and coming together. So we were looking at James 1, 22 through 25 in our men's Bible study. And it just, it just always amazes me how these things come together and, and where we are. Look at what James says. We are to be what of the word? We are to be what of the word? Doers and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. 
but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, what's really interesting here, and I know we're in Colossians, but I want to spend a little time unpacking some of the things that James is telling us here. I think they're really important for us to recognize. We are called to be doers and not hearers only. And then notice what he says. If someone is a hearer only, what are they doing? They're deceiving themselves. Notice how James speaks of how we often deceive ourselves. We think that exposure to God's word is all that we need. And unfortunately, in, in the church today, that is not even happening like it should be. Right? People are turning away from God's word. They're not reading God's word. They have Bibles in their houses, but they're up on shelves and they're dusty and they're never open. People aren't reading God's word. And of course, so for, for us to apply God's word, we have to be exposed to it. But exposure is not enough. Reading God's word, learning God's word, even meditating upon God's word is not enough as what James is telling us to do. What is to be the ultimate goal of our Bible intake? That we act, that we do what he says. And then James uses this really apt illustration. if If we're a hearer but not a doer, we're like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. And it's interesting how he phrases it that way. Because we can study with careful study and, and, and looking very intently at God's word and see what God's word tells us about who we are, about how we need hope in Christ, how we need to change and live a life of holiness before him. And we can see all that and understand all that, but we can then walk away and not have it affect our own lives. I, this is more, I think, applicable to ladies when you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and... You know, you look and you see what's going on there and you think, well, maybe I need to put on a little makeup or whatever. Guys, the same thing. You know, get up like I'm my beard starting to get a little scraggly. I look at it like maybe I need to shave it. Uh, Not yet. It's still not too scratchy underneath. So I'm going to let it keep going. But we, we look at those things and then and then we don't do anything about it. And that doesn't that's not acting upon what we know to be true. And so. We need to not go away and forget what we are like. Rather, we need to go and see what God's word says and then act upon what God's word says. And then notice what he calls God's word. He says that the one who looks into the perfect what? Law. The perfect law. Now, that's interesting. James uses the term law three times in his letter, and this is one of three. And he is equating the law with what? Because he's already talked about we're to be a doer of what? The the scriptures or the word. So he's using the word law interchangeably with the word of God. Now, why would he do that? Why would he use the term law? Why would he substitute that? Because, honestly, if you read through some of the things in the New Testament, it seems, or it can seem, like they weren't really big fans of the law. 
The law had been put away in Christ. We're in a new, a new covenant. The law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But now that we're in Christ, it's at least some people will say, we don't need the law anymore. There's a name for that type of teaching. It actually means against law. Does anyone know what that term is? Antinomianism. Two Greek words, anti and nomos, against law. And so antinomianism essentially says what James is saying here. You look at God's word, it brings you to Christ, and then the law, you don't need it anymore. But James is calling us to recognize that the law is not something that we are to be against, but rather it is something that is extremely necessary for our lives. How does he describe the law? The perfect law. It is the perfect law. The law was given, yes, to show us our need of Christ. It was given, as Paul says, to be a schoolmaster, to bring us to him. But then is it no longer useful? The answer is no. And that's what James is pointing us to here. Listen, you're looking at the perfect law of God. The problem with the law is not the law itself. It's our inability to keep the law. And that is why the law drives us to to Christ. So that in him, being made a new creation, being changed by the new birth, having our nature completely changed by God's grace, now the law, which was to us only death that we could never keep in Christ, guess what we now can do? Keep it. We can keep the law based upon the grace of God that works within us. That is why he calls it the perfect law, and then he uses another term to describe the law. It's the law of what? Liberty, or the law of freedom. It's another interesting descriptor. Why would he call it the law of freedom? Because we are now freed by God's work of grace within us to keep the law. You understand, before... Christ, before we knew him, the law was only condemnation to us. Only told us that we couldn't measure up to God's law. But in Christ, we are now freed to keep the law. Now, are we going to do this perfectly? No. But the fact is that any time we obey God's word or resist temptation, you know what we are experiencing? Freedom. Every time we choose not to sin, that is freedom from our sinful actions that kept us a slave to sin and now frees us to live to Christ. We have liberty to obey the law. And so now understanding that, that we look at the perfect law, the law of liberty, then what do we do? We persevere. We continue straining. We continue Living and and ordering our life according to the word of God, according to the perfect law that God has given us so that we are no longer a hearer who forgets. But what is a perseverer? He is a doer who what? Acts. And as we do this, we do this all underneath the blessing of God. His grace is that which bears us forward. So when Paul writes to the church at Colossae and he says, listen, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I want you to act 
upon what you know. He's saying what James is saying. Isn't it marvelous that by God's grace, we can now keep his law? We're freed. And that's why Paul says, don't use your freedom as an occasion for what? Sin. That's how we often think of it. We think that we're freed so that in God's grace, we can go out and we can commit sin and we can do all these things. And there's no consequences because we're under grace. And Paul's response to that attitude is, God forbid. Rather, God's grace enables us based upon what we know, to act, to be a hearer and a doer, looking into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and acting as God calls us. Which, as James had spoken of, were to persevere in that, this action that is the fruit of knowledge, the second thing we see Paul pointing us to is that this action is continual. It is something we are to continue in. Again, what did, what did Paul, or what did James tell us? We are to persevere. We're to be persistent in this call to keep God's law. Notice what he says here, and he, he uses a term that's used throughout the New Testament. He says that we have this wisdom and knowledge, um, this understanding filling us so as to what? Walk. So as to. To walk. This is implying a continual process of acting upon the truths of Scripture. Think of it this way. Think of Dorothy, and she's there with the, the munchkins or whatever, and for her to get back to wherever she was, back to Kansas, all right, she had to do what? Follow the yellow brick road, all right? Follow the yellow brick road. All right, so... For her to do that, she had to continue taking steps in the direction that she was guided on. And that is exactly what God's word is calling us to do, to continue taking steps in accordance with his word. Now, here's the reality. Everyone is walking in a direction. In fact, there's really only two directions that are available. People are either walking towards the Lord or they're walking towards their own destruction. There's only two ways. Jesus spoke of how, which, which one has more people on it? The way that leads to life in him or the way that leads to destruction? The way that leads to destruction. More people are on that path. In fact, this is what the Psalms begin with. The worship hymnal for the Old Testament saints begins with a focus on the fact that we ought to walk a certain way. And it begins by showing us what we're not to walk in. Psalm 1.1, blessed is the man who walks, what? Not in the counsel of the ungodly. We're called not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly, not to stand in the way of sinners, not to sit in the seat of the scornful. What is the counsel of the wicked? What does the wicked want to do? Well, thankfully, Psalm 2 answers that question for us. The wicked, the kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. All right, so this is the counsel of the ungodly. What is it? Against Yahweh, the Lord, and against his anointed, saying, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
the, the way of the wicked, the counsel of the ungodly, is a way that seeks to cast off any accountability before the Lord. That seeks to live in such a way so that the perfect law that God has given that tells us what to do and tells us what not to do, they say, we don't want that. We want nothing to do with that. We want to turn that away. Of course, at the end of Psalm 2, we know what ha- or throughout Psalm 2, we know what happens. God is, what's God doing up in heaven as, the, as this is the counsel of the ungodly? What's he doing? Laughing. He's going to have them in derision. He's going to send his begotten son who has risen from the dead. There's clear indications that, that you are my son today. Have you bego- I have begotten you as a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ has ascended to the Father right now. He's coming back again. When he comes back, is he going to come back as a merciful Savior as he did the first time? And the answer is no. He comes back with a flaming sword of vengeance. He's going to come and judge the world for their wickedness. And so what's the conclusion that the psalmist makes in Psalm 211? Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. That term serve, it has the idea of make yourself a slave of the Lord. Give yourself completely over to him. Don't hold anything back. If we are called, as Paul is praying for us, to walk, it is, I think, very aptly described as a walk of service to the Lord. Every action we make, every choice in our lives, we ask ourselves, am I serving the Lord or am I serving myself? It's a continual, habitual call on our entire lives that we're called to walk based upon the knowledge that we have, the wisdom that we have from God. So this Action, again, is the fruit of knowledge. That action is continual. And thirdly, that action is measured by God's standard. Notice what he says, again, in verse 10. To walk in a manner worthy of who? The Lord. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The term worthy there refers to something that has value or intrinsic worth. And what he's saying is, What is produced in our lives that has value is determined based upon God's determination. God is the one who finds, or what we're supposed to be doing as we live our lives, he's the one who were to be considered worthy in his sight. I mean, Paul gives the same sentiment as he writes to to the church at Ephesus. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner, what? Worthy. Of the calling which, which, with which you have been called. The idea of walking worthy, that having value, is that it is in God's eyes that we are, continued to, we are considered to have worth. That he would conclude about us that we have done something good in his sight. Jesus talked about this in the parables. He, he would talk and, and he would give the story of, of the, the talents And you had the guy who was given five talents. And what did he do with those five talents? 
made five talents more. The guy who gave three talents, he made three, he made three talents more. The guy who had one talent dug and hid it in his, uh, underneath his bed in his house and didn't invest it. When the master of the house came to reckon with his servants, he took what they had done and he told them, well, what? Done. Good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. It is amazing to see that God looks at us and will say, well done. If we walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called, if we walk worthy of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to walk worthy of the Lord? And in particular, who should we be looking to to please? And obviously the answer is, our lives are lived to please the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. That is our primary focus in life. But what does that mean? How does God evaluate us? Does God just only look at our outward actions? No. We know this passage well. 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Don't look at his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but where does God look? On the heart. So while Paul is going to call us to bear fruit, and we're going to talk probably next week about this, or in two weeks, about the significance of bearing fruit and how there is a role for us as believers to examine the fruit of other believers. Nonetheless, it begins with God seeking to know those who are worthy by looking at their hearts. Jesus, when he was on the earth, he didn't need anyone to bear witness about man because he knew what? What was in us. Jesus knows our hearts. Listen, we cannot hide behind rules. We cannot hide behind obedience. We cannot hide behind making sure we're doing the right thing and still harboring a heart that is rebellious to the Lord. God knows. He knows what's in your heart. You can't hide it from him. And so when Paul is telling us to walk worthy of the Lord, that means that we need to begin in evaluating our walk where? Where is our What is the desire of our heart? Where is our heart seeking to lead us? Again, that is a a measure that only God himself can gauge. I can't see your hearts. In fact, one of the things that uh, Robert had brought out last week uh, was talking about omniscience, was the fact that God knows everything about us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And so that means that we don't live in such a way as to be a people pleaser. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians 6. He's talking specifically about the responsibility that slaves would have to their masters. In our particular context, it would be employees with their managers you know, what is your relationship with your boss? Well, you're to conduct yourself in such a way so that you're not seeking to be a people pleaser, but you're seeking to be a slave of Christ. 
that ultimately in your employment, your service is given to him, not to your employer. And so we're to render or we're to do the will of God from where? The heart. Rendering service with a good will as the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Everything we do, we must do it so that we do God's will from our heart. Knowing that the Lord is both watching our actions and knows our hearts. Again, in this book, in Colossians, Paul speaks of this in particular. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. And that sincerity of heart is wrought within us because we are doing what? We are fearing the Lord. Remember what? What we were called to in in Psalm 2? Serve the Lord with what? Fear. Rejoice with trembling. Our fear is not of man. Our fear is of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ in everything you do. Every action of your life is to be brought underneath his lordship. Every step, every thought, every word. Serving Christ. That's what that's what Paul is calling us to here. To walk, man, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is to walk in such a way that we see him as our Lord. We serve him with all that we are. We do this, as Paul continues in verse 10, fully pleasing to him. Fully pleasing to him. And this is, again, where he's emphasizing, I think, the scope of what our obedience is supposed to look like. Should we be satisfied with 50% of our lives pleasing the Lord and 50% of our lives not pleasing the Lord? What about 80 20%, 90-10, 95-5, 99-1? Now, listen, everyone here is going to say, of course not. We want it to be 100 and 0, all right? We, everyone's going to say that. Live it out. Put it into practice and be honest with yourself. I'm not doing that perfectly. I'm striving. I'm persevering. I'm seeking to be conformed to the image of Christ and to live in a manner fully pleasing to him. You know, this is why Christ is the example in all these things. When Jesus was baptized by John, he comes up out of the water and John speaks and he sees the spirit descending from above and there's a voice from heaven that speaks out. This is my beloved son in whom I am what? Well pleased. And so the standard 
truly that we are measured by is to the fullness of the stature of the nature of Christ. His image is what we are seeking to be conformed into. I actually think we're going to get through everything tonight. Can't believe it. Which means then action, if it's measured by God's standard, the second half of that is that action is evident to others. Notice what he says again in verse 10. As we are living fully pleasing to him, we are bearing fruit in every good work. Now again, our ultimate goal is to please God, not man. But that does not mean that man cannot have an input or discernment regarding whether or not we are walking worthy of the Lord. There will be fruit, and that fruit will be evident to others. If we are walking fully pleasing to the Lord, we will bear fruit. That's what Paul is saying, bearing fruit, as though the two go hand in hand. If you're walking with the Lord, or walking worthy of Him, fully pleasing Him, then you will be bearing fruit. You cannot please the Lord apart from visible fruit in your life. That's why, again, what James says, it can't just all be head knowledge. And even to some extent, it can't just be good intentions. You actually have to live it out. You have to act upon what God says. And again, bearing fruit in how many good works? How many good works? In every good work. Again, this does not leave any aspect of our lives untouched. From your relationship to your employer, to your family, to your church, to your friends, to the guy that's driving in front of you on the highway. Your works, your fruit, that is based upon the knowledge you have in God or in Christ, Seeking to fulfill and please him in everything, that means that it's going to affect your actions in absolutely every area of your life. Every good work. Nothing remains untouched by the call that Paul, or the prayer that Paul is asking for here. Bearing fruit in every good work. And then, notice what he closes this phrase with. And increasing in what? The knowledge of God. The final thing we see that action does is action produces more growth in knowledge. So do you see the cycle? We begin with actions, the fruit of what? Knowledge. And then as we live out and act upon what God has called us to do, it produces more what? Knowledge. More growth in knowledge. In, in fact, and I think this, I was getting excited about this this, this this afternoon as I was studying this. What does this mean? Like, what is this knowledge that he's talking about? It's experiential knowledge. Again, we are seeking to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And when we take his, these principles of his word, walk seeking to please him from our hearts, and then bear fruit in accordance with that, you know what we're starting to look like? Jesus Christ. We're starting to truly be, be worthy of the name that we claim as Christians. And that's exciting. 
that we get to know experientially more and more what that's like. And here's the great thing. The more we know that, the more we want that experience and the less we want sin. That this experiential knowledge that works within us causes us to desire to be more like Christ and to turn away from the sin that we struggle with. That knowledge that he speaks of is going to propel us to want more of that experiential knowledge of what it is to be in Christ as we walk on this earth. So, growth in actions. Paul is praying. There's a lot that we covered there. But I think it's amazing to see. Knowledge pushes us to continually walk in a manner that pleases the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, from our hearts, producing actions, visible fruit in our lives, which then, as we experience what it means to be like Christ, we turn and desire to be more like Him. The Apostle Paul sums it up this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that we all with unveiled face behold in the glass the glory of the Lord. We are changed into that same image from one degree of glory to the next. What are those degrees of glory? Knowledge, producing experiential knowledge, driving us to have that experience over and over again. And we will do that until Jesus comes or we leave this earth by death. And then when we see him, we will be fully what? Like him. Because we'll see him as he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this prayer of Paul that so clearly lays out what it means for us to pursue Christ-likeness, to pursue sanctification. Father, work in our hearts that this would be our great desire. That we would know you, not just simply to have head knowledge, but to be transformed in our actions. Father, thank you for your spirit, which works in our hearts and takes your word and applies it. Father, transform us by your grace tonight. We pray these things in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.